You're listening to Women Making Waves. We hear now from Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald, the distinguished medical researcher behind methods of early cancer diagnosis. Her sheer quality of projects and work as a committed clinician is very impressive. And she talks to Linda Ness. I'm honoured to be joined by Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald, who is a medical researcher at the MRC Cancer Unit at the University of Cambridge, whose work focuses on the early detection and treatment of esophageal cancers. In 2004, she and her team developed the Cytosponge, a device that can determine the presence of cancer and is far less intrusive and much cheaper than an endoscopy. More recently, she's leading clinical trials into a device which sets out to detect cancer using a breath test. Professor Fitzgerald, thank you for joining us today. Let's go back to earlier in your life. When you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? And would you have been surprised to find yourself working in medical research? Do you know, it's funny you should ask that because actually really early on when I was apparently four, I decided that I wanted to be a doctor. And I started bandaging up our babysitter. But, <laughs> but actually, I have a very vivid memory of what got me interested in science, um, which was around the same time. So we were on holiday in Devon on the coast. And we set out on a walk and we came across a tiny little hut perched there on the side of the cliff. It was about the size of a garden shed. And it was a little local museum. And we had a look inside. And there were these large pots, and this sounds perhaps a little bit strange, <laughs> but they contained various artefacts, including some stillborn calf fetuses. Mm-hmm. I still remember looking at these specimens in the jar and just puzzling at why it was, because they looked perfectly sort of formed, why it was that they had never been born normally. Apparently, according to my mother, it was after that that I really started talking about science and about diseases and about people being poorly and and got into this kind of medicine. And I I never remember later on having to decide. I always sort of seemed to be set on this path of wanting to do medicine and being very interested and intrigued about kind of how the body can go wrong. And that led you to going to Cambridge University to study medicine. Mm. Did you enjoy that time? Was that a time that you really oh, enjoyed your student life? Fabulous time. So I went to a, an all-girls boarding school. So suddenly being, you know, free of some of some of that kind of institutional life um, in university <laughs> was, of course, great fun. The course was absolutely fascinating. I had some great lecturers, and suddenly being surrounded by people who were really interested in medicine and science. And actually, going back to my school. I was the only one that did physics, A-level, for example. The girl, really? you know, it was much more orientated towards the arts. And I always felt a little bit of a kind of oddball, actually, at school. And so it was a great joy and, and you know, relief to find out that actually it wasn't strange at all. And there were all <laughs> sorts of people who were very interested in, in science and medicine. You then went off to California, where you, um, you studied at Stanford and you did research there. Was that when you became really interested in the research side of medicine? No, you're absolutely right. And um, I'll, I'll let you into a secret. And in, in that really, as I got going with medicine in Cambridge and was doing my first jobs at Addenbrooke's Hospital, it was really the people side of medicine that gripped me at that time. 
And actually, I remember having an interview by the Regis Professor of Medicine who kept asking me about science and about research. And I, at that moment, I was thinking, yes, but, but, you know, the patients were in front of me and it was the patients that really grabbed me. And then what happened was my husband got a job at, at Stanford. So that suddenly made me have to rethink what I was going to do because I wasn't qualified to go and practice medicine in Stanford. So actually at that point, it was partly sort of circumstances and serendipity, if you will, that made me have to rethink a little bit the direction I had at that time. And I thought, well, Stanford has a fantastic reputation for research. And in my clinical jobs, I've been exposed to two particular sorts of sets of diseases, gastroenterology and cancer. And I got really interested in in cancers and, and gastroenterology and cancers of the GI tract. And then when I went to Stanford and I was sort of looking around for what to do there, I thought, well, maybe this is a good time to really go back to the science and do some research. And maybe I could combine this interest in in gastroenterology and uh, cancer. And when I looked around for people to work with, I met this very um, energetic, enthusiastic head of a, a research group. It took us ages to be able to pronounce his name, um, George Triadophilopoulos, and then I realised everyone just called him Dr. T. Um, <laughs> but he was hugely inspiring and encouraging, and I went to talk to him, and he worked on cancer of the esophagus. And I thought, well, that sounds like a great opportunity because there's cancer, there's gastroenterology. He seems like a very dedicated and keen person. And he said, yeah, sure, if you can raise a research grant, come and work with me and uh, work on esophageal cancer. And that's how you got into that. And then you came back to the UK. What happened after that? Because you work with patients as well, don't you? I do. So I have a a fabulous job because I work with patients and doing science. And the two absolutely are kind of integrated to try and bring the science that we do to the benefit of patients. So, yeah, we had a fabulous time in Stanford. It's a great place to live, a great place to work. Um, At that time, the training for medicine in the UK was being completely revamped and changed. And you had to have what what is called a training number to follow your clinical discipline. And much as we enjoyed um, the US, we wanted to come back to the UK at some point. I was pregnant at this time with my first child. And so I also was a bit concerned about having to get this magic number to do my clinical training. So we decided it was a good time to come back. And I still hadn't done my specialist training in gastroenterology at that time. So we decided to come back and I spoke to various people and Professor Mike Farthing then at Barts and the London Hospital, Professor of Gastroenterology, he was willing to take me on <laughs> and let me continue to pursue my research interest, which by then was really kind of burgeoning in esophageal cancer because his group mainly worked actually on immunology and an inflammatory bowel disease. And there weren't really at that time people following the kinds of things I was interested in, which was already early detection of cancer. As, as we said earlier, we think of researchers as sitting in a lab, divorced from the people that they're trying to help to some extent. But you also work with patients. Is that important to you? Do you think that contact with the patients drives you to do better research? Yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely essential actually. So I work with a, a, a wide team of people, including surgeons, pathologists, radiologists. So we need all of those perspectives and GPs and public health, because I'm interested in early detection. So we need all those perspectives to bear on the problem and really to, to get inside the problem and understand what it is that patients need and how to work with these other clinicians. You have to really be in the clinical space, I think. For mm-hmm. me, anyway, that's mm-hmm. been really important. And research can take up every minute of your day if you, if you let it. So kind of Wednesdays is my clinical day. 
and I never fail to um, enjoy that contact with with patients and often it just brings you up sharp to really think what it is to be suffering with a horrid cancer like cancer of the esophagus and you know to be diagnosed late and when I can't offer the patient very much and to realize how important the work is that we do. Yes I can imagine that would drive you and it must be an inspiring but harrowing job at times. People sometimes say isn't it depressing actually it's not depressing it's very motivating and people are incredibly willing to take part in research studies and um, you know as doctors we're in a very privileged position and actually often even when we can't do very much there's a lot you can still do to help in a small way and people are remarkably grateful. Now the early detection that you talk about your team developed the cytosponge and that's a small, if, I, if I'm right, correct me, it's a small device that you swallow. Ah, oh, you have one I here. I have one to show you because I thought, even though the listeners can't see it, I thought mm-hmm. it would just help um, you describe it. So it's a tiny pill that you swallow attached to a string. This is a very, very simple device, which is the whole idea to make it really as easy as possible for the patient. So you swallow the capsule and that will go down just, you know, through normal movement of the esophagus called peristalsis into the top of the stomach. That capsule will dissolve over about five minutes and compressed spherical sponge, which you can see here, has been squashed inside the capsule. And as soon as the capsule dissolves, out pops the sponge. And then a nurse can pull it, pull it out. It takes just a few seconds to pull it out. It will make your eyes water, but it's very, <laughs> very momentary. And compared with, a, with an endoscopy, this is super simple. Mm-hmm. And it collects a lot of cells on its passageway out from the top of the stomach and, and all along the esophagus. And then that sponge is just popped into a standard laboratory pot, which has some preservative liquid in it, and sent to the lab. And we spin the cells off, and then we've developed a test which detects a particular protein which is specific to the pre-cancer. That's called TFF3, so it's an antibody that binds to that protein, and it goes brown. So it's a very nice, easy thing to to see. And actually, we're now automating the um, analysis of it using artificial intelligence so that we get an, a near automated readout of whether it's positive or not. So I would describe that as almost like a small Brillo pad when it's yes, expanded. Yes, you're not the first to have described <laughs> it to that. It is a little bit rough and, and of course it has to be to mm-hmm. catch the cells. So this is a sort of spongy Brillo-y, yeah, Brillo pad type of material and the cells will get trapped inside that um, mesh and on the outside. So the beauty of this is you get a very rich cell specimen that we can then test in the lab and we could, the, the test is designed to be very simple for the patient and clinician to administer, to be suitable in GP surgeries or in a hospital setting, potentially in a, even in a very rural environment in the developing world where they have a lot of esophageal cancer. Then the lab tests you do can be you know, as sophisticated as you want them to be. Now, this initially was done in 2004, am I right in saying? Is it in general use yet? Very, very nearly. (laughs) Um, It takes so long, doesn't it? It takes so long. So, I mean, there's a developing the test, um, but also the clinical trials that you need to do. So we've done three clinical trials and we've just finished recruitment to our third trial, which randomised patients to patients with heartburn symptoms. So that's the main risk factor. So randomised patients to what the GP would ordinarily do for their reflux heartburn symptoms or offering them the cytosponge. If I tell you, it was a randomised trial of 13,000 patients across the UK. Wow. um, Designed to see if we detect more of the pre-cancer using this test than the GP, if they were, you know, doing the usual care. Mm -hmm. And also then we'll be doing all the health economics on this and evaluating what the patients thought of it and so on. I can tell you that on the simple acceptability rating out of 10, where zero is horrible and 10 is very nice, the rating is 8.6. 
that people that looks don't doable. Mind this test. It is doable because it is that, really I mean, easy. I'm terrible. The world's worst at swallowing pills. I have to say, I won't even take an aspirin. I am just absolutely hopeless. But considering this is a life-saving device, that that's doable. It's not too bad, is it? It's not too bad. And so that, that's partly why it takes a long time because you have to do these trials to get the evidence to back it up. But this device is now being made um, by Medtronic, who are a device company. Um, it's CE marked and FDA approved, so you have to go through a lot of regulation for devices, just as you do for drugs. And they're now doing what they call a limited commercial launch prior to making it for sale. So actually, it very nearly will be for sale. And then, But that's different, of course, than it being available on the NHS. But we're hoping that the results of the very large trial we've just done will provide us the kind of evidence we need to then talk to NICE, National Institute for Clinical Excellence, and the NHS about whether this is a test they could introduce. I should also say for your listeners, and you know, the, the condition we're looking for with this is called Barrett's esophagus. And I should reassure your listeners that the vast, vast majority of people with Barrett's esophagus will never get cancer. Oh, really? But the thing is, if you do go down that path, then, you know, it's a, it's a horrid disease. So mm -hmm. by looking with this test, we're looking for Barrett's esophagus and then wanting to treat the patients where there are some cell changes that look as if they're getting on the way to cancer to prevent it ever happening, or else just monitor them. And the monitoring, we hope, could also be done with this cytosponge in a very simple way. That is really fascinating. Also fascinating is the latest thing that you're working on, which is a kind of breath test, I understand. So you breathe into a, into a mask. You're trying to detect early cancer from that as well. Even simpler than swallowing right. the, the Brillo pad. Right, wouldn't it be nice if you, know, you didn't even need to swallow the Brillo pad? So there are volatiles on our breath that if you can capture them, you can measure these volatiles with mass spectrometry and actually you know, evaluate in the chemicals that are there and measure them and quantify them. So um, this test has been developed by um, Billy Boyle from Alstone Medical, who was also um, at Cambridge University, an engineer and span out his company. Originally, he, he designed the test not for medical use, but for spotting chemical weapons and things like that. He then realised the potential for um, medical diagnosis and cancer diagnosis. And so we're working with him to do a trial across patients with a number of different cancer types and at different stages of those cancers to see if it's possible to collect specimens that could be specific for different types of cancer. So one of the questions is, you know, how early could you detect the chemical changes on the breath? Mm -hmm. And do, do the chemical changes in, say, cancer of the esophagus look the same as chemical changes in cancer of the lung or cancer of the bladder or are they different sort of spectra so because in an ideal world if you if you have a test for cancer that's from a breath and you have no idea where it's coming from I mean with my Brillo pad I know the cells are from the esophagus but yeah. for the breath actually because of the way our metabolites are uh, put into breath the signal could come from a lot of different places yes so so one important thing is how specific would that signal be otherwise you have to then go and hunt you know using imaging or CT or something to find where the cancer is. But presumably if you can identify the signals from each type of cancer eventually that could be an indication of a lot of different types of cancer. Yeah, so that's the, that's the whole beauty the potentially trick. of breath. <laughs> yes. And people are interested in blood samples for the same kind of thing um, same kind of reasons. So yes, could you have a kind of a early cancer test that would give you a warning sign for cancer somewhere? And ideally, yes, tell you then where it might be and you would then go and look. We're doing this for women making waves. Are there lots of women involved in your area of expertise or in your industry? Lots of women, actually. In fact, we were just finishing off the last grant I wrote and we thought we should all go out to dinner 
um, to kind of celebrate and um, just having finished it, I don't know if we've got it yet, but having finished it, and as we all sat around the table, I suddenly realised that they, we were all women. Well, um, that's brilliant. Which was, you know, um, just the way it happened to be. And, yeah. and, and um, around the table were women who were experts in computational biology, um, in laboratory science, in um, clinical nursing, a whole raft of different disciplines. And um, my team is um, made up of people from around the world, men and women. But uh, yeah, I have some fabulous women I work with. Are there any ambitions that you would like to fulfil in your professional life? Well, you know, you asked me if this cytosponge test was available yet. And I guess, and I hope this isn't too far in the future, but I would really love to see this device, or if not this particular test, something, you know, think that I have helped to move the field along and um, make new early detection tests for um, patients with esophageal cancer and other things too, if I can. But I'd love to think it, it gets beyond a clinical trial and actually into um, it's It's brilliant. So. I mean, just sitting looking at it, it's such a simple idea in some respects. I'm sure the science behind it, the back end of it yeah, is not simple test. at all. Yeah. But, but it's such a simple and effective looking idea. So I sometimes say to people who are looking for new, you know, to, to come and work with me and do PhD projects and things that, you know, often people want to do the most technical sorts of um, <laughs> experiments that they can. And we do some of those as well. But I also say to people that actually sometimes the best breakthroughs that are going to make a difference are actually very simple. Your work-life balance, how is that for you? Are you do you find that you've got lots of time to spend with your family uh, or does work absorb most of your time? So I have four wonderful children and I love spending time with the family. And my husband worked in the university, had a startup company. He's now a director of the Royal Institution in, in London. So we have a very busy family life, but we all love spending time together. And I guard that time actually pretty jealously. Mm. And um, I don't spend a lot of time going to the pub with the lab members in the evening or, you know, the evenings are for me. And are your children showing signs of wanting to uh, go into the same kind of thing to, to do no. research or science? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, so the other thing that uh, we particularly all love as a family is music. And um, that's how I met my, my husband. And um, we love doing a lot of music. And um, two of the children um, want to go into music um, and already progressing down that, that path. Excellent. Um, the youngest one, it's a bit early to, early to tell, but he's, um, I think he wants to save the planet, actually. So there's some science in there, and uh, yes. I think that's not a bad call. I think we need a lot of people involved in that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald. That was Linda Ness talking to Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald. Rebecca Fitzgerald was a really interesting lady to interview. I really enjoyed that interview, actually. She was very open with you, wasn't she, on lots of things. Mm. But she's just like that, I think, you know, she's yeah. very easy to talk to. And what she's doing is making a huge difference. Mm. I love that. And I, I think what I got out of it as well was the influences that she had from specific people and teachers and professors. And I suppose sometimes we don't realise how many influences we have in our lives and how many people we listen to or don't listen to. But she's met some extraordinary people that mm. have really helped her passion along the way. That's right. And I dare say she in turn is doing that to lots of other people now in her team and, and beyond, I would say. And I love the fact that they're... 
you know, they've come up with this device, which she brought into the studio and showed me. And it is quite, I would say, quite swallow. I'm terrible at swallowing pills, by the way. I'm just a shocker. But it would be quite easy for most people to swallow. Um, and it is this Brillo pad effect. You know, they let it go down and then they pull it back up again. What a brilliant way oh, of yeah. very, very quickly and non-intrusively. I mean, it might, it might kind of make you think, oh, I don't really want to do that. But well, it's a lot better than the alternatives. Yes, it is, isn't it? Better than the endoscopy that, mm. they, um, that people have to do, which, you know, equally will come up with some good results too. But I thought that was brilliant. And she's yeah. so enthused by it, isn't she? Well, it can be used anywhere. You don't have to go to hospital and have all this expensive equipment. You can do it in a doctor's surgery. Also, I love the part where she is very, very keen and quite rightly, she wants to involve everyone. She's very, very keen to be aware of patients and what their needs are. And Mm -hmm. she has a whole role with radiologists and GPs and the early detection. I just thought she was so impressive. I think that's really good because I think dealing with patients keeps you grounded, I would imagine. Um, whereas if you're stuck in a lab all the time, I think you do become rather divorced from the, the end product, the end user. Yeah. Um, but but she's meeting them every week. And I think that's that's great as well. No, fabulous, brilliant, brilliant woman. But we, we must get you to pop a few more pills, Linda. <laughs> to practice. <laughs>